This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is Nabil Mahmood, your host from Kona, Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Brooklyn, New York. This is Caroline McCaffrey, and I'm also from New York. Caroline, thank you very much for taking the time and joining us to Nomad Futurist. Let's start with a little bit about your background, who you are, what you do, and where you're at in your career. Well, thank you first for having me. I appreciate being on the podcast. I am the CEO and co-founder of a company called ClearOps. ClearOps is a privacy technology company. We are on a mission to end data breaches caused by human error. And uh, we are based in New York City, but we are really just a distributed team, especially now with uh, COVID. Um, but we were fairly distributed before COVID anyway. You know, when I met Caroline initially, she was negotiating the the most annoying contract negotiator I've ever met in my life. I don't even know how to describe it. So I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you are a lawyer by trade. <laughs> Yep, yep. So I, I started out in uh, actually in Silicon Valley working for a law firm that represented technology startups and biotech companies and PCs. And when you met me, I had a progressed in my career, moved to New York and joined a marketing automation company called Sailthrough, and I was their general counsel. And so I was being really annoying to you on that contract uh, because we were moving data centers and um, we had learned the lessons from the previous data center. We were not going to repeat those. Having been on both sides of the table with Caroline, I prefer being on the same side of the table with Caroline. <laughs> um, one question, like, so when you got into law, was the idea always to, with a focus on technology, is that something that always had an interest for you? So uh, not really. I mean, I, I think my, my experience with technology goes um, pretty far back. My father was very... Um, very interested in technology. We had what was considered at the time one of the first electronic homes. Um, we, when you drove over the driveway, there was a little um, like electronic strip underneath the driveway and it would tell you who was going in and out of the house, which growing up as a teenager, you can probably imagine was not the most ideal. The original big brother. <laughs> That's right. No privacy. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I was definitely interested in technology from the very beginning. We had a computer fairly early on. My parents were very much interested in technology and, and getting the latest, um, you know, type of toys and devices that they could to uh, to see what was going on in the world in terms of advancing in technology. And um, so when I, I had decided early, early to be a lawyer, my grandfather was a lawyer. My great-grandfather was a lawyer. In fact, my dad's generation was the first break in lawyers. And so when my grandfather passed away, I said, well, I'll be a lawyer, dad. I'll, I'll pick it up for my generation, you know? And, <laughs> and one of the things about me is I tend to make a decision and just stick with it. And so I just stuck with that decision. But I think the two interests of having been in a family that was really interested in technology and me, you know, being that person who would sit there and fight with all the wires. I had two different game consoles, Nintendo, a Sega. I had all kinds of stuff, big gamer and then also wanting to be a lawyer, you know, those those two interests met when I finally graduated from law school and saw, oh, there's actually a way for me to to continue to pursue both in a way that I didn't actually realize was available. And so, um, yeah, when I found Gunderson, which was the law firm I joined after law school and saw that they were working with tech startups, it was a very exciting, interesting field to join even though I was mostly doing corporate securities law, which is, you know, I don't know how you much how much you know about that, but it can be fairly boring. I actually, I actually fell asleep while you said corporate securities law. I nodded <laughs> off for a second. <laughs> Not quite as boring as commercial, though, which is what you were talking about before when we were negotiating contracts. That is not very exciting. Corporate security law to tech firms to data centers. How did you make that leap? Um, when I went in-house, my goal at the law firm when I was an associate was to go in-house. I really thought it would be a great next move in my career. And when I went in-house, I started to, I got into privacy, which of course you can't get into privacy without cybersecurity, and really started understanding, working with our DevOps team and our infrastructure uh, folks to really understand how things worked. And again, I've, I've always been the IT person at home, the one who's figuring out where all the cables go. Um, 
and to this day, I remain an IT person. <laughs> and so when I was at the first startup, I, because of the interest in privacy and cybersecurity, I started a security group and started to really understand how things worked when it came to the business and the data centers and where the data was flowing and how it was flowing and co-locations versus cloud and, and everything like that. And then I started getting uh, security questionnaires, which is one of the problems that ClearOp solves. And that's by having to answer those questions, by having to respond to these questionnaires, I started to understand more and more and more about what was going on. And really, it's my co-founder, George, who I'll give all the credit to of teaching me a ton about networking and infrastructure. <laughs> You've clearly learned it all wrong. <laughs> what I want the, li the listeners to understand is that when anyone puts any app on their phone, when anyone subscribes to any website, there are these long and long since kind of ignored terms and conditions that come at the end of each thing. And you think that there's nobody on the planet that's ever read them. Caroline is the one that's read them. Not just one of them, all of them. If, if one of the goals of this podcast was to try to translate how someone in you know, a technology-focused environment kind of impacts the regular lives that all of us experience, whether we're in tech or in any other field, or whether you're frankly, you know, my seven-year-old son who just got his own, you know, um, iCloud user account and is now downloading things that I just have to say, you know, approved for download, but he's, you know, he's accepting terms and conditions himself probably, or, you know, someone that is, you know, in the technology world and leveraging apps for, for business efficiency. Um, I think just the notion that, there's somebody out there that's actually read some of that language and 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 has gone through the um, uh, the process of understanding it is is amazing to hear and I, I think one of the questions given that is like what have you learned like what is it what what are some surprising things that you found in in researching some of those things that people might not know that they've agreed to in, in downloading a popular application. Oh, so surprising things. I mean, I think some of the surprising things, I don't know if this would be surprising, but the amount of times, just uh, the amount of times that uh, terms and conditions are reused, you will see literally a company borrow another company's terms and conditions, um, even though those terms and conditions may not particularly apply to that piece of technology. And so you may be reading something that actually doesn't work with what you've, you're supposed to be agreeing to. And that's actually why I've become fascinated with understanding, well, why, are, why is a lawyer writing this particular provision? Only to find out, well, maybe it wasn't actually written by a lawyer for this technology. It may have been a lawyer writing for some other technology that this company borrowed to put in their terms and conditions and didn't really fully understand it. Well, I think there's multiple aspects to that as well. Like either the lawyer was extremely smart and made it so complicated that the user can't really understand. And it also actually made it more of a blank whereby I have fully access to everything that's on your device. The second part, like you said, it was copied by somebody else. So the third one is what I feel is actually a major concern is that the lawyer probably does not have any understanding of technology and the platform and level of complexity or from not in the space and or is not asking the right questions or, or from the developers. What has been like some of the big surprises uh, as it entails to invasion of privacy, security, access to data, whether it be geo voice, emails, or and any other elements? Uh, what, what stood out for you as you've read these and examined these that our users should uh, have a general idea about? Well, first of all, I want to, I want to hit on, Nabil, you, you made exactly the point that I, I want to focus on, which is that the communication gap between the legal language and maybe what a you know, particular attorney is writing or just the legal language in itself and how you write legal documents and then apply that to actual technology and understanding the, the underpinnings of the actual technology and then trying to bring those two together is incredibly difficult. And there's not a ton of, uh, it takes a lot of work to actually make those work together. But to your point of what is surprising, so I think there's been a progression over the last decade in, in terms of what the online terms and conditions and privacy policies say. Um, a privacy policy 10 years ago was really done for purposes of safe harbor compliance, what was called safe harbor at the time, now it's called Privacy Shield. And they, they definitely 
said everything that you would hate to see nowadays. Things like we can take your data and do whatever we want with it, right? I mean, and you just really have no choice and that's the way it is and that's how it's gonna go. <laughs> um, and, and it's changed dramatically since then, but you will still find a lot of companies that, I mean, just don't even have a privacy policy. That's kind of, that's very surprising nowadays or that have disclosures in there that say things like you can use our application but anything that you put into our application, we can then do anything we want to, right? We can use it for anal analytics. We can store it in our databases. We can retain it forever. Um, we can sell it. We can do all kinds of things with it. And people, because you just want to glaze over the legal language, you don't realize exactly how much of your rights you're giving up. As I said, it's progressed over time. And so that that's falling out of favor, but you would be surprised at how often that still is in there. Um, and I think part of that is the, a little bit of the legacy, but I think all of it is also just a mindset. Um, because when you're building technology, when you're building an application, to think about the privacy implications from the very beginning, from the user's perspective, is not necessarily uh, second nature to us yet. And so things like- I mean, Do oh, users even have the expectation of privacy anymore? I mean, is, it, is, it, is the reason they glance over these terms because- you know, they, they would just rather get to it and, and, and use the app and Snapchat and, and just give their likeness to whoever um, rather than, yeah. Yeah, I, I think from a user perspective, it's the wow factor, like TikTok. Oh my gosh, 10 second videos, great. Snapchat, 10 second videos, great. And then it disappears. Well, no, it does not. The wow factor the developers have created because they want the user base and nobody reads that language. Uh, I, I remember like back in the day, not that far ago, like five years ago or something like that, there was a, a great app that had come out on iPhones and that was basically a flashlight to convert your camera phone into a flashlight. I accidentally took the time of reading the policy and it was accidentally. mindful. You were clearly installing it while you were in the bathroom and you had nothing else to read. You were out of the, the toothpaste and it wasn't, was out of reach. Yeah, I started reading through that and I was like, okay, so why do you need my, my location? Why do you need access to my, my microphone? Why do you need my access to my camera? Why do you need access to the storage on my device? No yeah. reason to. So yeah. just imagine, I mean, millions of people probably download those applications on a regular basis, not knowing what they're giving away. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. So my kids, um, who are 13 and 12, many years ago, we were with another uh, set of parents and their two kids, and they're all roughly the same age, and my my daughter comes over to me. She says, mom, can I download this app? And I said, well, you know what? I need to see the privacy policy. And she's like, yeah, I have it up for you. And she showed me on her phone. She's like, here's the privacy policy. And I skimmed through it and I said, okay, yeah, I think this is fine. And the parent, one of the, the moms, she looked at me and she goes, oh my gosh, am, am I supposed to be looking at every single app's privacy policy? And I was like, no, because you have no idea what you're looking for. I can skim through this thing in probably 15 to 20 seconds flat and pick out the things that are going to concern me and give me the decision-making capacity of saying yes or no to my kid. Whereas you don't, <laughs> right? You don't have that benefit of all this legal background and all this time and all this effort and all the understanding of how technology works to be able to do it in 15 or 20 seconds. And so what are you going to read? You're going to spend 15, 20 minutes reading something and still barely understand half of what it is because it's written in this language that doesn't really make much sense. So no, I, I don't, expect you to read. I'm not going to make you feel bad about not reading privacy policies. Uh, but you will create an application that allows the automation of determining whether a privacy policy is, you know, uh, uh, up to par or not up to par. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's my passion. It is. That's my passion is that we, as we need to make things easier, you know, it's just too complicated now and people want to make decisions much more quickly. And so what are we doing is we're skipping over the step versus making the step a little bit simpler so that it doesn't, it can take someone 15 or 20 seconds to pause and say, should I be downloading, you know, TikTok or whatever? I just want to see, I just want to see the look on the GC's face at TikTok when, you know, parent Caroline McCaffrey sends a red line of the, of the privacy policy before her <laughs> daughter can install it to see if they'll, uh, they'll adjust it. I did actually recently do a comparison of the privacy policy on Zoom because they changed it in late March. And it was, it was actually kind of fun to see the, how they, uh, they changed it, but yeah. What do you think is the future as it entails to the privacy policy? So the reason why I asked that question is because Apple 
and the droid platforms recently pushed out COVID-19 tracking on your mobile devices. So you have to make sure to turn it off if you don't want it, but that's without any approval. That's OS push into the system. So how would you address that? And, and what concerns do you have as it entails to the privacy policy? I've been following this contact tracing, um, both the, the, the backend API that they are building and also the applications that people are trying to build on top of it. And when that was announced, where they had pushed that update and it had now had the contact tracing capability on the phones, um, I was surprised. That was my first reaction. It was just really like, oh, they didn't even ask for consent. And I immediately went into my settings, found where it was, and saw that it had been pushed onto my phone, but that it wasn't turned on. Right, so it's it's pushed into your phone, but it's not turned on by default. You have to go in and figure out how to turn it on, or the application that is connecting to it has to somehow, you know, make sure in the process that it's turned on. So I'm a little bit less bothered by that because I now understand what, you know, what the whole point is. And to me, it's all up to the application developers to make sure that privacy is being respected when it comes to building these contact tracing apps. Apple and Google with this unlikely collaboration that the two of them have, right? You have Apple that's always said, hey, we're privacy and we're the only one that thinks about privacy. And then you have Google who most people would consider the opposite. Um, I think it's an unlikely collaboration, but it's interesting that they did it. They're, they're basically got together and they said, we're going to have this API that stores the data in a distributed you know, database or databases um, for privacy purposes. So, I like that. I like that that's what they they did and that they pushed. What I am concerned about is that all these application developers are coming in and basically ignoring that tenant that they're trying that those two collaborators are trying to push and doing things that are not privacy friendly. And then you now have I think there's tens of these apps now that are available and there's no way for someone to distinguish well which one actually cares about my privacy and which one doesn't. And some of them are promising things that we're not really sure they're actually doing. So there's a few things that stand out. I mean, first of all, the mobile devices have actually pushed it on an OS. They should have gotten someone's consent or at least notified the user that we're doing so. People that are in the industry could actually go in and, and go shut it off. But those that aren't, that's a challenge, right? Or will be a challenge for them. I mean, it, if we didn't know it, it, it could be enabled on the back end. It could be hard-coded that you can't disable it. Uh, that, that leads into a concern. And then, like you said, these app developers that are writing on the platform. So if I, if I download an application and uh, it's basically asking for my geo or COVID-19 testing, so on and so forth, it will automatically enable that. Yeah. So uh, wh where do you think we're headed with that? I mean, privacy is the biggest concern. Security is the biggest concern for, for, for the now and the future. I think for contact tracing specifically, it's weighing the benefits to society and the health versus the, the benefits to privacy and security. And I don't think we have to be doing that. I, that's that's kind of where I, my, I, I stand. It's like, why are we, why does there have to be a trade-off? Why can't we have a contact tracing app that actually has privacy and security by default built into it? You know, like no one needs to store that data. After two weeks, just get rid of it. Actually delete it, not, not delete it on the app, but it's stored in a backup that can then be brought back to life at some, you know, none of that stuff. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, but that's, that's not the practice and that I will never be the practice. I mean, I, I, I believe, you know, we give them a little access to this and it's just going to get deeper and wider. Data is the new currency, right? So there's no incentive for them to delete it because there's a value to the existence of it because they can use those analytics and sell those analytics to you know the highest bidder. I mean, I think that's true with, uh, with, with all this stuff. And you look, at the end of the day, this is gonna be the unfortunate trade-off because you're never gonna get people, you know, even if you get one company to agree or two companies or Google and Apple agree that with the thing that they're creating, they'll have this trade-off. I just don't think people have the wherewithal and the sophistication. And frankly, I don't think they really care enough about maintaining privacy to pick and choose which applications they're gonna use based on whether you know the, the, the privacy policy is being adhered to because there's just too many options. And you know some of it is gonna to have to be, I guess, 
uh, every individual is going to have to determine you know, how much they actually care about their own privacy. And if you make the choice that you don't actually care about your own privacy, then why should the business that is supplying those applications care enough to, you know, make themselves beholden to a privacy policy that is, you know, maybe in their eyes, unnecessarily burdensome? Yeah, I believe it's, it should be available for those that choose not to, for those uh, that would still want to be connected to the world, should actually be given the ability to select and not be monitored. I think they have a choice still. They can actually go off the grid or they, what was it the last time, Phil, we had somebody in the bush from the bush? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> we we uh, still have a choice that you can actually totally disconnect. The, um, the, my, my head fits a tinfoil hat a lot better than yours does because I have, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of slick. So I think I can go off the grid a lot better than, than you can. Just look, and I think that's the problem. I think the problem is people have the ability now, you know, to not install particular apps if they have time and the inclination to, to research which apps are, are good and, you know, whether there's an update made on your phone, you are given a notification before your phone updates that whether you want to download this thing and then you can look into the details and determine whether there's an element of that upgrade that you don't agree with and then choose to opt out they make it very annoying to do that because they would rather everyone just follow along um but you know it's the difference if you still wanted to use you know i think razor came back out right if you still want to use a flip phone that doesn't have some of these capabilities you can do that it's just you know that's the trade-off and and i i think it's unfortunately to go in that direction i don't think i don't think we can we can make the companies that create these applications care about it more than the people that are installing I think I, well, I just agree with you, and I think that's because I'm an optimist, and I'm also. How dare you? Dare you. <laughs> but I think I think the world is moving towards a direction where companies do have to care about it. And I actually love the thing I love about the contact tracing discussion, contract tracing app discussion, is we're taking privacy out of the data breach field, right? Where so far the only reason for someone to care about their data is because it might get hacked or breached by someone who shouldn't have access to it. Now we're putting it in the your data your health data may be sent somewhere that you have no control over. That's a totally different privacy discussion than, than we've ever had before. And so, and this is where sort of the law part of, of my background is interesting too, because there's there's a whole public health, you know, sort of exception to where data, to these data disclosures. Like you can send data to to public agencies and to health, health, um, health, um, public health facilities and, and uh, you know, like the CDC and that kind of thing without having to ask for a user's consent, because that's an exception from the law about where you have to provide for certain rights to data subjects. So if you're having a contact tracing app, you, you, as a user, you're like, well, okay, fine. I'm using this contact tracing app because I want to know if I have been exposed to COVID-19, right? And that's the only reason that I'm using this app is so I can either notify other people or I can be notified. I don't want my data to be held in some research facility 20 years from now that someone can pull and say, oh, that, that Caroline, you know, when she was, she was a, a woman in her 40s and she got COVID-19 and at this hospital and in this state and like all that, day, I, I didn't expect that to happen. So why not get consent for that? And that's the fact that we're having this kind of conversation, I am very hopeful, means that people are thinking about privacy proactively now instead of reactively, right? When there's a breach, you're not thinking about it before it even leaves your hands. And that means that companies and businesses like Google and Apple are actually having to say, well, we're going to actually think about your privacy before we launch something. And we're going to do what's better. What we think, what we know is best for keeping your privacy as much intact as we can when it comes to something that is inherently not going to be very private. Well, I think that's the that's that's the one thing. Just just one point on that, since uh, I'm the one you're disagreeing with. The problem with a lot of this online data is that there's only so much control any any one place has um, over it, right? So they can make their best efforts to to you know solidify and 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 be conscious of privacy. And I do think that you know that the health element of it is is a little bit more scru scrupulous than some of the other things. And you know, with HIPAA requirements and, and all that stuff, obviously, you know, that's something that people take very seriously. But the more you have this blend between the technology and the way people are interacting with their phones on a regular basis and the transmission of this health data where you're not just transmitting it, going to the doctor's office and signing that form and, and, and going through those motions. If you think about 
you know, how Facebook got in trouble in the 2016 election. Um, and their excuse was entirely that, well, we didn't do anything, but we gave access that we thought was innocuous via a third party API to this other company. And they manipulated that data and, and mined it in a way that we didn't foresee. So it's not really our fault. It's there's, there's all of these opportunities for third party companies to interact with that data and not necessarily, you know, I'm sure it's traceable if you really, you know, go all Matlock on it and, and figure it out. And I'm sure the Carolyn, so my God, I said it, the Caroline McCaffrey's of uh, of the world have those sorts of scruples. So 30 years later, 75 year old uh, Caroline is going to like take her cane and, and be like, you know, give me my data back. I can't believe you're using that. But you know, that's the thing. It's, um, you know, it, it, how, how much control does any entity have over it? And that's where, you know, I, I can't imagine that there is going to be a significant focus or, or just that the possibility of all of these varying, um, you know, opportunities for everyone to, to care as much about privacy, even if, you know, the, the creator of the application does. And I think part of your point goes to just the incredible mess or disorganization that we have been experiencing over the last, you know, 30 plus years where these connections have been happening through the internet, you know, starting, starting at the data center. (laughs) Um, And no one's actually been tracking, oh, my, this data is going to go, this data flow is going to go here, this data flow is going to go here. And so then, then you get to that point where Whereas a company, you can't even control it anymore. And that's that's part of what I'm fascinated with and we're fascinated with is, is holding co- companies accountable now and saying, well, how, you got to figure it out. How do you plan on holding companies accountable? I mean, um, there's so the, the, the challenge. And the reason why I asked that question is because there's, there's a clear challenge. The regulatory and compliance bodies within the U.S., folks that are leading those initiatives have no idea what data is and what it does. So whoever the best lobbyist is, they, they, they go with them. And then there is no process downstream. So it's a free for all. How do you address that? I mean, I moved the Nabil over to the dark side. Right. I mean, I, I love technology. I support everything about technology. But this is this is a major concern. Privacy and security going into the future is a major concern. I believe where we are at today, and this is just culturally speaking, of people that are in the technology space, that we have become a very reactive society. We always like to put patches and band-aids on things that are broken or we feel that they might be broken. And we're just looking at that one instance, not the bigger picture. Hence, we create a bigger problem, whereby the challenge is much bigger. You mentioned electronic health records. I don't even have access to my own health record. Yeah, that's right. Uh, We are creating a society which will look like Minority Report or Repo Man, because data is going to flow into wrong bodies and wrong people, because it's all very much so interest-driven by individuals and companies. In your position, your capacity, and your leadership role, particularly in the privacy and cybersecurity segment, feel that it should be addressed on a go-forward basis. Um, all, all fair points, and by the way, I talk about Minority Report all the time as being the most prescient film of our time because it's so much of it. I, I think it's <laughs> the writers were just brilliant. You know, I, I can't, I'm not going to claim that I have answers to everything, but I do firmly believe in transparency and that there's a way to, there's a, that there's a way to figure this, these massive problems out. I think the problem you identified on the, um, political laws getting passed and regulators understanding the technology I, that's that's a that's a very hard problem right now I, I think um, just look at some of the questions that were asked of some very well-known technology leaders um, at the record that- show that Caroline is referring to I think <laughs> was it was it Mark Zuckerberg being asked um, if he if he produced the the iPhone or how come he's not getting email or something it's just you know the the, the sophistication of uh, the people in power leaves a lot to be desired I think the first podcast we released uh, with Kevin McNicholas touched on it somewhat you know the the you know there's always that adage that you know hackers are always ahead of of, of security we are technology is so far ahead of lawmakers, so far ahead of even the people that are put in control of the bodies that theoretically regulate 
uh, technology in every element of it, whether it's you know sales tax conversations or privacy conversations, the nuances of technology. I mean, you have members of Congress, uh, Congress that I think believe that COVID nineteen was caused by you know five G. I think that exists. So yeah. you know, it, when you have that type of leadership and that type that lack of sophistication, I mean, society is, is it going to ever be able to catch up? It's it's a it's a long it's a it's going to be a long process. Um, I you know I I think the uh, the education of the consumer in privacy and security is is not there yet. Right. I, I don't think that the understanding is quite there yet, which is why at ClearUps we're going after the business um, first. But I do believe that there is a way. I mean, the interesting thing that we have found at ClearUps is that the, the Internet itself has a lot of information about how the Internet is operating. Right. So as long as you go and you look for those specific public pieces of public data, you can start building a picture on certain things. And that's what I mean by transparency is you can see really from um, looking through different sort of public data elements, whether or not a business is thinking about privacy or thinking about security or isn't and how they're doing it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of examples where I have seen companies that just don't even have a privacy policy to go back to our earlier discussion. And that may not seem like a big deal because like who cares about a privacy policy? But to me, that's that's a huge red flag. You don't even have a privacy policy. Like, why don't you have a privacy policy? That's that that in of itself is a data point that means like, that all you have to do is copy the one from somebody else's website and put it on your website. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, uh, I have I have one one final effort on this point before our, our our listeners probably just roll their eyes into the back of their heads talking about privacy policy, which is and we've touched on the idea of you know kind of um, adjusting or evolving the education system uh, in in our country and it not keeping pace with technology with the understanding that consumers of this like we talked about earlier are getting younger and younger the people that some people don't have Caroline. McCaffrey as their mom to read their privacy policy is an incumbent upon us as a society to actually start, you know, teaching children that that are are having to um, you know experience what 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 the apps install. Um, if we want the next generation to have any understanding uh, of this stuff, do we need to start some level of education? I'm not suggesting we have you know contract classes in kindergarten, but is there some way? To, to, you know, create education in the younger generation so that, you know, we can have a future that, you know, might be slightly more sophisticated than, um, you know, flat earthers. Yeah. And, and the ending to that story actually is that now my kids are 13 and 12. They, they get to the privacy policy on the app. They review it themselves now looking for the points that I have taught them to look at. And I have situations where they have come to me and said, I'm not going to download this app. My God, you are a you are a pushy mom. I love it. I love it. My God, Caroline, what are some of those points? Uh, could you share those with our listeners? Yeah, and so I, I do want to say privacy is personal, right? Everyone's different, has different um, sensitivities when it comes to what they care about, and what they don't care about. So mine. My life, for example, is an open book. <laughs> um, so for me, there, I do care about what country the app is developed in. So I always look to see what country it is because there are countries with laws, privacy laws, they go against my principles. And I also look to see their data collection practices. So every privacy policy will talk about the data they collect. So um, it'll say things like your name, your email address, your IP address, but then it'll usually have a list of certain other things. And so you look in there to see what other things there are. Um, I look to see when it was last updated which is an interesting data point. But for me, if it hasn't been touched in over two years, that's a huge red flag. Um, and um, I look to see, uh, or the other main point is what they can do with the data. So data we collect, what we can do with your data usually is another section in it. And if it says things like we can transfer it to anybody in the planet that we choose to and you don't have a say, then it's a no-go. What are the bad countries, Caroline? What are the bad countries? <laughs> How can you not tell us what the bad countries are? Are you kidding me? I'll just leave it with this. There are certain countries where they, if they have access to your data, it is not allowed to leave the country. Are you not going to mention one country, not one? Just mention <laughs> no, a bad one. No one cares. What's the country? Okay. Oh, that's right. My God. Yeah. Where is Zoom created? I don't even want to know. So the implications for the users as it entails to the privacy policy and security, uh, be careful as to what you sign up for. 
it, it could potentially lead into identity theft. Identity theft or the fact that you now have data in some other country and you're never, ever going to be able to get it out. And you're never even going to get to know that it was in there in the first place. And you have no idea what they're doing with it, such as the Facebook situation <laughs> with Cambridge Analytica. Let's switch gears a little bit. So with COVID-19, what are some of the things that people should be concerned about as the data is being collected in electronic health records with other platforms or contact tracing? Uh, with people working from home now, what should they be looking at? When you're talking about people who've been tested or who've gotten the antibody tests, clearly that data is now out there, right? So um, because you probably used your insurance card or you used a credit card to pay for the test, uh, they took your name and, and address when you went to go get it. So that data is now available um, somewhere and probably going, and obviously we know that because we're, we're all tracking how many cases there are every single day, right? And that, all that data is being aggregated and put up into those systems. So, but I think, and I'm not as worried about that because it's more on an aggregated basis. Um, working from home, I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot of, um, there's, a, there's a big concern on my end on just the security of people in their homes and having, for example, an in-home IT person who can make sure that you aren't still using your default password on your, on your Wi-Fi network. <laughs> um, I think it's a big one. <laughs> I assume you both fixed that issue. <laughs> admin, admin. Admin, admin. <laughs> or is it one, two, three, you, you four? Didn't change it. You didn't change it to admin password? Yeah. <laughs> admin with a capital A. No one will guess that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think those are the top of the mind ones for me. I mean, when I think of the effects of COVID-19 long-term, I think of it as how we're going to continue to be remote workers for a long time. And then also, also just the devastating effects of the economy and how we're going to how the world is going to shift, right? We've lost so much in travel and entertainment and a lot of those people are now going to be probably going into technology. So we may see a huge technical explosion. Another good plug for this podcast, anyone looking to get into technology, this is how you do it. Um, Look, you started a company fairly recently, right? And in the midst of starting that company, maybe it was within the last couple of years, um, in the midst of starting that company, we we had a pandemic. You know, you hired a couple people, you know, you had that nice space in downtown Brooklyn. Has there been any disruption that you've been surprised by? I mean, obviously, you know, your kids, your kids were home like everybody else's and, and you were, you were home. Um, and you have, you had probably a lot of these remote, you know, working uh, arrangements already in place, knowing, knowing your partner, George likes to work, you know, between three and five in the morning, most, uh, most, most nights, um, probably suggests that he should be working from home much to his wife's chagrin. Um, I guess, is there anything that surprised you about, you know, that disruption and has it impacted you in, 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 in any way that, uh, that, that you're surprised by? Well, sure. So we had, we launched really our product in February. So poor timing, I guess, on our part, we had a a lot of customers lined up and then a lot of those same customers are now, have had massive reductions in staff and massive reductions in pay. Um, So starting a company during this pandemic, you know, a lot of people say um, starting a company during a downturn is the best time to start, but I can tell you it, it there's, there's obviously silver linings. I'm, I'm grateful for our health. I'm grateful for the fact that we can work remotely. Um, but the, the downside is that business just kind of went away in, in the blink of an eye and trying to figure out when you're a young startup like us, how you haven't even figured out your sales strategy, let alone be able to pivot it <laughs> for a pandemic. Right. Sure. Uh, that's been challenging. That's been good education though. <laughs> and have you decided how you're going to pivot? Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, so the first thing we tried to do was um, really go into the health tech sector and say, hey, we're here and we want to help out with the pandemic. So if you have new vendors you're trying to onboard and you want to review their privacy and and cybersecurity, let us do it for you. Um, The other thing about a a young startup is you really have zero budget for marketing. So, you know, how do you get yourself in front of those companies and even in the first place? So we've, we've gone through iterations of trying to figure that out. And now we, I feel like we're actually starting to figure out and, and starting to see some, some interest, which is, is very, uh, which is, is awesome. Um, same thing with ed tech. We had already been in the ed tech space. We have customers in ed tech, uh, but you know, ed tech was not very easy to get into before COVID. And now, now it's actually quite easy. I mean, not easy, but it's, it's, you know, the, the urgency is there like it was never before. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I think you know what's what's interesting about times like this. I, I think Nabil always quotes uh, that that old phrase of "with all times of uh, you know calamity or difficulty, you know, comes comes opportunity." I'm sure there's a better way to to say that, but you know, I think that there are so many varying ways that people are now, you know, utilizing things like telemedicine, which was, you know, almost more theoretical four months ago. You know, it was a, it was a handful of, of doctor's offices that would even talk to you um, over the phone, much less diagnose you um, over the phone. Uh, obviously, educational tech, you know, my, my, my three-year-old and seven-year-old, you know, on Zoom, using, using Zoom more often than I was uh, to a certain extent during the school year. Uh, and now camps becoming virtualized and classes becoming virtualized and, and all those things. And you, you have to imagine that there's going to be a future economy where, you know, some of the specific industries that have become virtualized will have, you know, applications and companies that are dedicated to, you know, providing a specific forum as opposed to everyone just leveraging Zoom for, you know, that or Microsoft Teams or, or whatever, that there are going to be these specific things. Uh, like my kids were using Seesaw, which is like an, you know, an application that allowed them to interact with their teachers uh, and have them check um, you know, check their work and, and, and all that stuff on, on a regular basis. So, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's incredibly interesting. And it's basically what you guys did, you know, pre obviously this whole pandemic is, you know, you look for a problem to solve and you try to automate, you know, a solution to that problem, which is, you know, reading all these agreements that, that nobody has the hope of ever reading. Um, and, you know, I think what, what our listeners would would appreciate, I think, is is that vantage point, like understanding that, you know, there there is a limitless amount of um, evolution for all of these different types of applications, where all businesses at their foundation are solutions to problems that exist. So, you know, if if you're able to to share some of that you know, that thought process on, you know, how you wrap your head around, you know, describing an issue, knowing that it needs to be, you know, solved, and then actually, you know, going forward and, and, and believing in yourself enough to, to actually try to build a business around that, that idea. That was a long-winded question. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was um, constantly running into the same problem over and over and over again, hating, hating it, hating to deal with the, the things I had to deal with as in-house counsel, the, the, the conflict it would cause between me and colleagues, um, always looking like I was the holdup. And you, and you and vendors. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, as legal, you get, you're known as the department of no, but it, you really don't want to be ever the blocker. And, you know, that was where this pain point really, stemmed from but for me the it was finding a co-founder who complemented my skill set also um convincing him right i mean being able to convince him was was a huge like okay if i can convince this guy then i really do have something then i talked to a lot of people who had experienced the pain point and they all told me how painful it was what was painful about it what they wished they had instead i still do that actually i, I did that today um and then also just having, a, I guess, a confidence in my own understanding of my own skills and a confidence in them. One of the things I have learned being a lawyer is that I'm a closer. I uh, used to make sure that deals got closed. That's what I did. And, and I, I did it over and over and over again hundreds of times. And so um, I know I get things done. And so I, I never was worried about starting this company and then not being able to actually figure out a way to get customers, figure out a way to build a product, just get, get this stuff done to actually get it going. Um, it took a little bit longer than I'd like, but um, now we're, we're <laughs> accelerating at an incredible pace. <laughs> Outstanding. So let's switch gears a little bit. For the younger generation, what advice would you give them? I kind of heard a couple of things. One is uh, confidence and always be closing. <laughs> yeah, I guess I would say it's self-awareness, you know, that whole sort of, I guess it's part of my mantra about transparency, but know who you are. Are you someone who's a self-learner, a self-starter, or are you someone who really thrives better under direction? Those, those actually do lead you in two different career paths. If you can identify which one you are, not saying that there's only those two choices, but that those do really do ha have a big impact on the career you choose and the direction you want to go. If you want to start a company, it's probably better to be a bit more of a self-starter or start out in the directed position and figure out how to become a self-starter. 
knowing who you are. What would you tell your younger self, like if you were to do it all over again? I, I've often thought about this question because like I said, when I was in sixth grade, I said, I'll be the next lawyer for the family. And I just did it. And it was never, I never looked back. I never deviated from that. I never said to myself, you're stuck. I just never really deviated from it. And I did everything I could to prove to myself that that was the right choice. I think if I had maybe instead of proving to myself that was the right choice, going out and seeing what else was available, I probably would have been a developer. I probably would have gone that route instead, um, just because I love technology so much. And I have often thought about going and taking a coding class or something at this point, but I, you know, it's, it's kind of um, hard to do when you have a lot of other things you have to do. <laughs> how, how dare you suggest that it's ever too late to become a programmer. Um, the, uh, so, so you have a 12 year old, a 13 year old. Have you bestowed upon them this notion that, you know, they are not like young Caroline required to make their final career choice within two years and, and know the exact, the exact path that they're going to take? Absolutely. I, all the time I'm, I'm talking to them about they're never locked into a choice to explore, to use this time to figure out what they enjoy. And, uh, and, and when they say to me, mom, I don't even know what college I want to go to. My 13 year old has said that to me recently. I'm like, well, I should certainly hope not because I wouldn't expect you to have that much pressure on yourself right now. Like it, it's more important right now that you're still figuring out who you are and what you like. Do you think there's something specific about, you know, who can get involved Technology. I mean, technology is such a broad spectrum. You know, in the old in the olden days, twenty years ago, if somebody said they were in they, they were going into technology, it was like lab coat, pencil, geeky. You know, they they don't they can't interact with with society because it's just you know they're thinking on a different level. Now everybody's exposed to technology other than that guy that we talked to in the bush. Everyone is in some way interacting with technology on their phones at home, obviously with, with, with COVID-19. So do you think that opens up an opportunity, especially now that you're going to have, you know, a significant amount of the population that's going to have to deal with a career change, notwithstanding that, you know, the younger generation that has to figure out a career path and, you know, the hospitality industry probably, you know, isn't it uh, at this point, at least not, not anytime in, in the near future, you know, is, is technology an, an impediment to them or is it an opportunity? Are there opportunities in all areas of technology where, where people can, uh, can get involved? I definitely think there's opportunities in all areas of technology. And I also will, I'm fascinated to think how technology is going to transform some of these industries that have suffered such a huge hit from COVID-19. Cause I, I really do think there's gotta be something, you know, like Airbnb having online experiences versus you actually going into someone's home in a different place and, and staying there. Not really? Even. That's where the $300 a night to go FaceTime into somebody else's home to be depressed about your own life. Great. The, uh, <laughs> I remember the Jetsons. That, 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 was, that was couch surfing. Yeah. <laughs> the Jetsons used to have this thing, right, where, you know, you you didn't really go out to eat. There was like this this almost vending machine where, you know, somebody would create the food and you have a pellet and then you would eat the pellet and that would be the experience of uh, of whatever that cooked meal. So I was going to say Mario Batali, but we're not allowed to mention him anymore. So I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. I, I believe Phil has like uh, become from socially awkward to socially acceptable or socially cool now. It's probably the new... The new buzz. Yeah, yeah. No question, no question. <laughs> you know, being in the industry uh, from a legal perspective and legal, it's its own language whereby a comma here or there could make a difference in what and how it's construed. It's actually quite close to programming in that way. It is It is very close to programming. That's, that's one of the synergies I've learned is when someone, when a programmer says to me, you know, they were heads down in something, I'm like, oh, I am the same way. Right. <laughs> I'm often heads down. Like in it, in the document. Anyway, Just yours usually start with like, hear ye, hear ye. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Where to for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the technologies on a go-forward basis or as we move forward that you're looking at or uh, are concerned about? So is it artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, hyper-automation, robotic cross-automation? I mean, you're going to get me on my soapbox, but um, AI and ethics is uh, I think a, a huge area that we need to spend a lot of time on. I think the systemic bias that is inherent in AI in the data sets um, and the people who are programming it, not necessarily people in terms of themselves being biased, although I think there's some of that, but just in the makeup of the team who are actually creating it. Um, and also in the feedback that they're generating and pulling into the systems to try and improve them. I think all around you have opportunities for bias to creep in and it's incredibly difficult to get rid of it. I think there's it's interesting to see that there's now companies that are popping up to 
check your own AI, right? So it's like you you built in the models and you have the models operating in your company and another company is going to layer on top of those models to make sure the models are operating in a way that's ethical. <laughs> um, so it's like AI upon AI. Um, and then we're starting to have this layered effect. But I am very much worried about AI developing so quickly and at a speed where the um, this opportunity for bias is, is not going to be rectified. I mean, you have a company, and I will go ahead and say this one, um, you know, allegedly Clearview AI, uh, if you read about um, what it does in the New York Times and the articles that they've published, it's, it worries me. Like that's, that's, I don't understand how they're cleaning their data sets um, because they literally, they only represent one group, which is law enforcement. And so that's where they're going to get their data from. That's what they're going to build their models on top of. And that's where they're going to get their feedback from. So how the do the record you- show that Caroline said allegedly, so it's not an actual, <laughs> nobody can come after her. <laughs> yes, please don't, please don't sue me. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very big concern. And I, I don't think there's been enough concern thrown at it yet. I think we need to, as a society, we need to figure this one out before it goes too much further. So we've identified a lot of challenges with privacy, security, um, technology and its platforms. How do we fix it? What What is it going to take to fix it? Um, it's going to take a, a lot of work. <laughs> um, I think it takes a lot of people to care about it. I think it takes every single person to want to, to, to no longer think that privacy is dead, right? The, the whole concept of privacy is dead is a concept that's being pushed by people who want you to think it's dead so that you forget you don't care about it anymore and you keep giving your data for free. So let's just change that narrative. Privacy is not dead. It's still alive and we can all still get it. We just have to work hard to get it. So that's gotta be the the hardest part, right? The hardest part has got to be getting people to care about it. Um, Yeah. I believe, I I think, uh, you know, one of the resolutions would be is like when we get hit hard, like we got hit hard in COVID-19, when people start seeing the results and the implications of how, you know, digital transformation that we've been talking about for the last decade. Yeah, you don't really need it. And here you go. You know, you needed it. We've stretched the boundaries of the, the bandwidth, the latency, the infrastructure. We pushed it to the limit. And now it's becoming a norm. I believe... As, as as humans, we are going to realize the threat and the implications when we are going to be in that situation. Talking about it early on, and that's probably just human nature. It's easy. It's working. It's not broken. Why fix it? That's the mindset that we've actually lived with, grown up with for centuries. Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, just everyone go watch Minority Report. <laughs> Let's see. Final thoughts by Caroline McCaffrey. <laughs> I feel like I just said it. Like, you know, it, it's um, privacy is important. Transparency is incredibly important. Uh, I, I would love to hear people's thoughts. AI and ethics, I think we need to focus on that so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past and the future. And uh, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking. <laughs> Thanks for coming. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.